Good morning. You guys hear me okay? There we go. <clears throat> we are in week two of our Tough Questions series. My name is Brandon Barnes, uh, one of the elders here at the chapel. Uh, last week, if you were here, hopefully you were here, uh, you heard Zach tackle this tough question of uh, addressing the exclusivity of Christ. Can there really just be one way to God? And this morning, we're going to be talking about another tough question, how can a loving God send people to hell? I had some people jokingly ask me if I had done something wrong at the elders meeting that I was like assigned this topic. <laughs> Believe it or not, I actually picked this one of the four that were presented. Um, I suspect in our audience this morning, there's a broad range of people coming uh, that, that have kind of thought through this in different ways. And I want to acknowledge all those different ways maybe that, that we, we um, listen to a sermon on the teaching and of justice and final judgment in hell. I think um, some people may come sort of with uh, a traditional, grew up in a church and, and they've wrestled through this and they've studied it and they're, you know, they've kind of understood it that way. Other people may come and sort of think of hell as like this, this part of ancient literature that's just really not relevant anymore. Some people just are ambivalent towards it, um, don't have a preference one or the other. And then certainly I think, I think probably predominantly in our culture, um, the way people view this is that it's offensive, that it's offensive, that some going to heaven and some going to hell does not at all fit into our culture of tolerance and acceptance. What I want to do this morning, though, is walk through the implications of this question to show why it's so important, not just as believers, but actually as human beings, that it makes sense of love and justice, fairness, and how avoiding this topic actually gives us an incomplete picture of both God's character and honestly the nature of humanity and, and human beings. And so, Zach talked a little bit about this idea of postmodernism, that in a postmodern view of the world, all truth is relative based on the perspective that you have, that feelings carry more authority than facts. And if you missed out on Zach's sermon last week, I highly recommend going back and, and taking a look at it, because we're going to build on that a little bit with this topic as well. Understanding postmodernism can also help us understand how people receive teaching of hell and final judgment. Give you an example. I was raised in the early 70s and 80s, and the churches I went to had no problem whatsoever t teaching on hellfire and brimstone. In fact, I think I was six or seven years old when the church I was going to played this movie, which was just terrifying. And it was on a reel-to-reel -reel in a dusty church hall, and I just remember, like, you know, literally being scared to Jesus. And and, and that worked pretty well for the church back then because the way that we understood right and wrong was by the consensus of our community, by the consensus of our family or our neighborhoods. But we don't live in a culture that interprets right and wrong or processes the right and wrong in the same ways. Our culture processes right and wrong now through a continuum of inclusion and exclusion and actually this word called self-actualization. Meaning, individual truth is held as most precious, and I should only feel a sense of guilt if I'm not being true to myself, or I'm not following my desires to their full potential. That's what self-actualization is. Therefore, if you try to use religion as a device to guilt me into changing something, and it comes into conflict with the truth that I've established at my very core, then your belief is shrugged off as best as, well, that's just your truth. 
right? We hear people say that all the time, speak your truth, that's my truth. Or worst, worst, you'll be rejected for hate speech or for attacking someone at their very core. But Jesus' message, love, acceptance, grace, forgiveness, those things are broadly accepted. People like those, but where he makes claims of right and wrong living or eternal punishment, that can actually stop somebody in their tracks if their self-identity becomes threatened. So, again, I think we need to step back and we need to really look at what Scripture is teaching on hell and judgment because it actually helps us understand justice and love more fully. God can't be good without being just, and he can't be loving without also dealing with the evil in the world. And we know that, you know, not everybody believes in a, in a Jesus that resurrected, but 65% plus of Americans polled believe that Jesus was, in fact, a good teacher, that Jesus had things to say that matter for human rights. Jesus had things to say about love, and, and they'll, they'll agree that he was a historical figure. But I'd like to challenge you and, and let you know that Jesus also spoke on the topic of hell more than anyone else in the Bible, more than anyone else. And if hell was on his mind, I think we should understand that reality, and we should understand the importance of it in making sense of our world. So, I'm going to break this question down. How can a loving God send people to hell? I'm going to break it down because really there's three things that are being sort of implied in this question. First, it is an implicit plea for justice, is it not? When we ask that question, we're saying, how can God send some people to hell? That is in us to basically push back on something that doesn't quite feel just. Where does that come from? I want us to look at the, the idea that, that the question is, is saying God is sending people to hell. I want to look at that and understand really how do people end up in hell? And where did we get the idea that God is loving to begin with? Where did that come from? Why do we assume that God is loving? Now, I, I stand on some pretty tall shoulders this morning. A lot of the, the work I've done, uh, you know, there's much smarter people out, me, out, out there that I've borrowed their brains for um, to help this morning. And I, I give you that whole bibliography in, in the email that will go out, and it will certainly be on the website. But try to give credit where credit is due. So we're going to spend a lot of time using uh, select verses and, and passages out of Romans this morning. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 1 and 2. Before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we have together. This is a big topic, a topic that the Bible teaches as being important and of eternal consequence. And so I just pray that our, our ears would be opened, Lord, that we would reason together through this, that we would ultimately see where, what true love costs. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so how can a loving God send people to hell? It could be an innocent question, just sort of looking for an answer, or potentially an accusation of unfairness or injustice levied at anyone that believes God would, uh, might judge people eternally according to their actions. But what is interesting is the question, again, assumes an implicit appeal to some kind of justice. We long for justice, and we long for justice from a good and fair judge. And I'm going to show you why. Hidden in the question is an appeal to some kind of moral law, some kind of moral law. I'd argue the reason that we even ask the question is because deep within us, God has given us kind of a, a piece of code that like triggers us when we're treated unfairly. We all sense it. We feel it. We sense injustice around us. And certainly the pressures of postmodernism um, tell us that our individual truth matters and we're to filter truth 
through ourselves, but not, it's not individual for everything, is it? We watch in despair as the laws changing in Afghanistan are going to be extraordinarily repressive and I would say inhumane towards women. The death of George Floyd wasn't just something that was deplorable because of my unique view of right and wrong. It had a nationwide impact. It had a global impact. Watching bad governments hoard or stockpile resources from other countries intended to help the poor, when they stockpile and it doesn't get to it, and you see pictures of, of people starving, that impacts us. We cry out for justice. Where is the justice? The mere fact we ask the question rests upon something I believe God has deeply ingrained. So look at Romans chapter 2. And for, for those this morning who are coming that maybe reject a couple premises, one, reject the premise of God. Well, the question is baked in can a loving God. So I'm going to assume we understand that. Two, I'm going to be using the Bible. And some of you may be saying, well, I don't trust the Bible as, as a source. I would tell you for this morning, if we're talking about how we have to look at the Bible, we have to look at the intent of the author, so we're going to do that. But also, I'm going to invite you back in two weeks because we're actually addressing the question of um, how can the Bible be trusted. So, quick, quick advertisement there. But let's look at Romans chapter 2, uh, 14 through 15. It says this. Romans 2, 14 through 15 says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law... They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. There's that piece of code I was talking about. Their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. The Bible's not just saying that it's the Jews that know and understand you know, the Ten Commandments. Basically what the Bible's saying, what Paul's saying, is Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles, everybody other than the Jews all of us that aren't Jewish, um, we all have a deep sense of justice because it's written in our hearts and it's there to point us to the giver of justice, our creator. So the issue isn't that we can't agree some things are right or wrong. Actually, the issue is who should judge? Who should be the judge? We do need a judge or nothing else would really make sense without punishment for wickedness and rebelliousness, the good and the righteous would be treated the same as the wicked. That's not justice, that's injustice, right? So it's rational for us to want justice because without it, nothing makes sense in our world. It just doesn't. I lead our young adult ministry, quick plug, 18 to 29, Tuesday night, 7 o'clock in here. And one of the things we like to do, and we did over the summer, was we like to find a gospel theme in movies. And one movie that's a blockbuster that came out a few years ago that has a really strong actual gospel theme in it was the Avengers Age of Ultron. Avengers Age of Ultron. Tony Stark, who is Iron Man, right, creates this computer program. It's intended for good, but it gets mixed with some evil artificial intelligence, and his creation turns on him. Ultimately, it takes the form of this robot that kind of goes haywire. It takes an entire army of superheroes to stop him. Tony Stark goes after his creation to destroy it before it takes over the planet, plunging the world into darkness and slavery. You tracking the gospel theme at all here? It would make no sense in the movie for Tony Stark to sit back and say, well, I love my creation unconditionally, therefore I'm going to not intervene and not make the rights wrong. It would make no sense. Tony could judge exactly what was needed to be done because Tony knew the original intent. He knew the original 
design for the program. And when it, it went against the original purpose and it went against um, um, what it was designed to do, it instead became a vessel for destruction. And not to act would be neglect. Not to love would be injustice, not justice. So we sense deep in us justice, but justice requires a good judge that would be most able to look across the entire span of humanity, all the ideologies, all the thoughts, all the actions, and be able to render them the most fair verdict. And the only one that could do that is the one that understands our design, our intent, and our purpose. So, now with that foundation in place, we can look at the next part of the question, which is, who's sending? How do we end up in hell? It's, it's, yes, we need a good judge. We can all agree that, that would have the last word, but do we need a judge that assigns eternal punishment? The more troubling part of this question is the idea of God assigning people to hell, a place of torment, a place of darkness and separation that spans for eternity. The Bible doesn't back away from that. The Bible does not back away that a place like that exists. So how do people end up there? Point number two, who's doing the sending? Let's look again at Romans 1. We're going to look at 18 through 25. 18 through 25. Again, Paul speaking to the church in Rome. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly understood, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. That's a tough passage. But we have the best illustration, frankly, in the Bible of the sickness and cancer and progression that sin takes. The first thing we see when we look at this, we see sin is the suppression of truth. Meaning, according to this passage, God has revealed his truth to us. And how does he do it? He reveals it to us through his creation. So what we see around us, the good we see around us, and actually what we see in each other, the good we actually see in each other at times, that is a pointer to a good God. But what's interesting is we tend, we tend to focus on evil in the world and then we actually question God's goodness, don't we? But don't the good things in the world bring us those same questions? Why do we just assume good? We see common graces all around. Common graces is a reference we use to, to kind of talk about the fact that goodness that we see that we can all experience, whether you're following God or you're a Christian or not, there's good in the world. Those are common graces we can actually see and partake in. And those are marks of God's goodness. Those should point us back to him. Things like good music, things like good food. When people come together from all different backgrounds 
And they, even with different beliefs, and they work for a common purpose to do something that benefits each other, that's good. Those are pointers back to a good God. Paul says for us to miss that in the world is a suppression of truth. Basically what he's saying is what we're doing is we're taking the good things from the creator, but we're not giving credit to him. As a parent, if you're a parent here, you know exactly how this works in the home. My wife and I will clean, we'll prepare food, we'll do laundry for the kids, we'll take our kids different places. They take and take and take. And never, if they never stop to realize how smoothly their life runs or how well-equipped they are for success in their day and never give thanks or appreciation or worse, take credit for how well they're doing without giving any mention to their parents, it's hurtful. It's hurtful. We do the same things when we suppress the truth that God has revealed in the natural world and his resources to us. So that's, that's one way uh, we kind of work down this, this progression. First, sin is the suppression of truth. Next, sin, it says in verses 21 through 23, darken our hearts. Sin darkens our hearts. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So first we suppress truth, and then we rationalize our decisions and our motivations away from God. We serve our pride, our abilities, before acknowledging the God that gave us those abilities. We then become hardened to God, and instead we prop ourselves up as images worthy of worship. We take God's good stuff, we filter it through our own prideful hearts, and then we worship it. It's displaced and disordered worship is what Paul's saying. A great analogy of this uh, that Pastor Tim Keller uh, he's an author and pastor uses is the, pro, uh, the pro, um, progression of addiction. Those of you who have come through addiction or are familiar with addiction know these three behaviors. Addictive behavior, the first one, it's characterized by rationalization, meaning nobody knows, or, or I, in order to deal with or cope with this issue I have in life, I need to take this or I need to go to this. And so we rationalize those things. Then the next progression it takes uh, from rationalization is isolation, meaning we start to see ourselves as victims. Nobody understands what I'm going through. Nobody knows the pain that I'm feeling. So therefore, we wall ourselves off from people that care, and we focus more and more on the object of our addiction, right? And then finally, the, addic- the third point of addicted behavior is that we disintegrate. We disintegrate. The thing that we are addicted to completely blinds us or darkens us to anything else. It takes more and more, and it gives us less and less in return. So the struggle for an addict is the false belief that they are in control. So what Paul's saying is here, is that what hap- that's what happens to us. That's what sin does in our lives. Sin suppresses, sin darkens. And then the final point, Romans 1.24 says, we're given over. We're given over. Sin fully enslaves. Romans 124. Then God gave them over in their sinful desires. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Many of you are going, okay, Brandon, I'm, I'm following with you, but drug addiction is pretty clear. Any sort of hardcore addiction is pretty clear in terms of an example of someone that has turned to themselves completely or is pretty self-centered. But aren't most people just trying to live a pretty good life? I mean, aren't people just sort of your average run-of-the-mill good person? That, you know, the little old lady down the street, maybe she doesn't know God, but she still isn't she a pretty good person? 
Well, Paul uses this term gave over, and if you look in verses 24, 26, and 28, he says the word gave over three times, and then he follows that by all the propensities of the human heart. And by the way, not one of us is left out of those examples. No sin is worse here than another because he says they all have the same long-term effect. In exchange for the desire of God and his goodness, we latch on to the worship things. We, we latch on and worship other things. And when we do that, we actually distort what they were originally intended for, what they were originally good for. And in fact, it becomes like an addiction that controls us. I was watching a, a TV show, and, and there were two characters, um, and one of them was getting divorced, and the other one was his best friend. And they're talking, and, and the, the guy who was getting divorced was becoming increasingly selfish in his decisions and, and really, really tough to kind of be a friend to. And, and the, the friend finally turns to him and says, you know what, there comes a time when you, when you stop being a jerk and you just are a jerk. And I was thinking about that's, that's what Paul's saying here in giving over. There comes a time what we, what we do now matters. The decisions we make now reflect what we will become in eternity. We are becoming something. Paul is saying we're all worshiping something. Eternity will begin, be us given over to whatever our hearts desire for worship for eternity. And I recognize when Paul lists all these things out, all these different sort of sins and propensities of the heart, we don't all ripen to those and embrace them in perpetuity at the same full-blown evil pace as like an Adolf Hitler. I get that. Or think of Je Queen Jezebel in the Bible who hated God and, and killed his prophets. But let's think back just to that average run-of-the-mill good person that, that doesn't claim they need God to be nice. What the Bible is saying is those that attempt to stand on their own goodness are actually standing on graces that are experienced because the presence of God is available to us now. His invisible qualities, the Bible is saying, his invisible qualities are with us now. He's saying the choices we make now for or against God are enough for our creator who knows the depths of our heart to discern if our desire is for him or against him. Let me give you another example on that one. If we as human beings have been able to um, map the human genome, we can discern the language of our bodies now, right? It costs like a thousand bucks to do it. It's crazy. If we can build a browser that can feed us up whatever our heart desires and actually can discern what we like. If I use the word right now, bacon-flavored toothpaste, you're going to see it on your phones later, right? <laughs> you will. If we can do that, cannot the God who gave us that intellect, who gave us that intellect, can he not see into our hearts to know whether we want him or not? Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28 Remind us that those who die and deny the goodness of God himself at death, God essentially takes back all that borrowed virtue. What we see and understand now is common graces that are his, and the full torrent instead of our character of the heart is unleashed. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. The nice lady, apart from God, is fully given over to the things Paul talks about here. Her ambivalence towards God, the impatience, the lust, the greed, the slander, the viciousness, all dabbled in, we all do, comes rushing forward, and that's her identity. John 3.19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. 
The darkness here will be given as a result of the rebellion. Sin, fully enthroned, ultimately dehumanizes. We are human because God has made us good. That's why we know it. That's what humanity is. Take that away and we are become unhuman. So to answer the question, who's doing the sending, we have to look at this passage and answer the question, we are. Our suppression of the truth, our dark hearts are given what we want. It's us for eternity. C.S. Lewis's classic quote, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it's open. A lot of tough things. Let me just summarize it this way. Sin suppresses. Sin separates. It ultimately enslaves us. There is, to put it a different way, there is a hell growing in each of us. Some faster than others. But the outcomes are the same. We are all addicts to ourselves and need an intervention because what we are becoming eventually determines what we will be. Hell is both terrifying in its logical outcomes of the dehumanization process, but fully just as God gives his creation what they most desire. Finally, I want to close out this morning on my third point. Where do we get this idea of a loving God? Certainly the things I said may kind of steer you away from that, but let me bring you back. Let me bring you back. Zach did a good job last week of looking at some of the key differences in the world religions that are out there, Judaism or um, Islam or Hinduism. And while those, those uh, religions have in their tenets core teachings on love, love is not foundational to them, meaning love does not, uh, is not explained. But in Christianity, we have... The origin of love explained. The Bible explains it through what's called the Trinity, the triune God. One God, three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And this is so unique because the Bible tells us that God didn't create because he had some sort of vacuum in his, in his, you know, in his soul that needed to, to create. Well, God, God created from a place of love and then invites us in. No love could exist outside of a relationship, right? So the, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there's a relationship of love. The uh, corn, uh, theologian Cornelius Plantinga says it like this. The persons within God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, exalt each other, commune with each other, defer to one another. Each person harbors the other at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. That is God's interior life. Therefore, it overflows for the regard for others. That's what we're invited to. That's what God created originally out of. You want to understand love? Understand love from the God of the Bible. To presume there's a God with the capacity of love, you are riding on the beliefs foundational to Christianity. If we accept this, then God as perfect love would ultimately define what is opposite of love. And he would be responsible to his creation when it acts out of alignment and out of his character. And you don't have to look hard in the world to see where we, where we find the opposites of love, do you? Hate, indifference, apathy, violence, anger, hypocrisy. 
So the Bible asserts this narrative. God created us to be with him. He offered us freedom to choose him or freedom to choose ourselves because God understands that love is not coerced, but it's designed, it's deepened through gratitude. It's deepened through appreciation. It's deepened through communion and adoration. But we didn't trust him and we instead chose ourselves. And so that choice separated us from God and it kicked off this cycle of brokenness that has perpetuated like a cancer. We see vestiges of good in the world because God's presence is with us, but it points us back to him. However, pride and selfishness is the source of our broken relationships to each other and in the world. But rather than stand back and allow it to happen, God intervened. For God to just ignore the injustice done to himself and done between us would not be loving at all. God could have well been in his rights to just destroy his creation to end the cycle of sin altogether. But in his perfect mercy and love, in order to deal with the brokenness in the world, God will intone and he will intervene for man with his son Jesus, a cost far greater than we can understand. Why do I say that? Your deepest, most loving relationships are built over time, are they not? The more you spend time with another person, the more you sacrifice to that person, the more you give to that person, the more they give to you, that relationship is forged tightly. And when that relationship is broken, it hurts deeply. Now imagine what I just described, the God of the universe, this triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Imagine that for all eternity. God releasing his son, after all eternity, to pay a penalty for us, to willingly separate from his son for us. What will that cost, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Luke 22 gives us a great example. It's Jesus praying to the Father before he's going to go to the cross. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, but not my will, yours. In anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. We've all experienced stress and anguish, but I would argue nothing like this. Separation from the Father, he was brought to the point of sweating blood. Why? 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The weight of our sin placed on Jesus who would willingly go to a place of immense torture concocted no less by his creation for maximum pain. So I think what happens in our culture, I think we tend to sentimentalize love. I think we watch too many movies on the Hallmark Channel and we start to forget what love is. It's great sacrificial cost. We just want a God to love us unconditionally no matter how we act, whatever we do, however we live our lives, we only want a God that will provide justice for other people when they do wrong things. We quickly forgive in ourselves that which we condemn in others. But I think if we bring this attitude and this question to the cross, it looks a little like this. Let's just imagine we're, we're at the foot of the cross. There's Jesus on the cross. And we look up and we have an opportunity to talk to Jesus and we say this. Jesus, I know you loved people that were really hard to love. Cheaters, beggars, bigots. Yeah, Jesus, you did some pretty miraculous things. You fed people in miraculous ways. You healed people that were sick. You straightened their legs. You gave them vision. 
even brought somebody back to life. You did things I could never do. You said things that changed the world. But I need you to take my word for it. You don't need to be there. I believe in a God that only loves and never condemns. You're wasting your time. It all means nothing. I think Jesus would look back and say, you don't understand love. We understand Jesus' proclamations of grace and love as astounding because of his teachings of hell and separation from God that he endured for us. Otherwise, it's us telling Jesus on the cross, I'm less barbaric than you, I'm more compassionate, and I'm wiser than you. Theologian J.I. Packer famously said, Modern people, though they cherish great thoughts of themselves, have as a rule small thoughts of God, and I think this applies pretty well. Suppressed truth, darkened mind, slaves to sin, we are desperately in need of a Savior. So how can a loving God send people to hell? Christianity holds out a God infinitely just and fair that is able to judge because he is the original designer. God gives us the desires of our heart. Without punishment for wickedness and rebelliousness, the good and righteous would be treated the same as the wicked. That's not love. That's not justice. So the judge does something astounding, and he puts our guilt on his own son to pay our debts and invites us into a restored fellowship through his son. For us, for us now, to pass this offer leaves God not unloving, but us condemned by our own doing. So I'm going to leave you with two points of application. First, for those of you who are not following Jesus this morning or believe you can stand on your own, I'm just going to ask you humbly, what are you becoming? What are you becoming? Eventually you stop becoming and you just are. We all serve someone or something. If you want more of yourself as your master, that's what you're going to get. If you want a master that loves you and wants to give you abundant life, he offers his son Jesus. If you never understood your condition apart from Christ, I ask you, repent. It's just a word we use to say, turn. Turn and receive this Jesus that bore the wrath of hell on the cross for you and for me. It's a free gift, Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. It's a gift you have to receive it. You can't put your hand up and say, no thanks. It's a gift that has to be received. And for those who do, Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your sins, past, present, future, done away with. Another challenge to this group this morning, for those who are following Jesus, who are you telling? Romans 9, 2 through 3, Paul saying, this is powerful. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Do we have that same burden as Paul? Would we be willing to give up our own status for the unrepentant? You know, salvation doesn't depend on us, but we are to testify to God's work in our lives. Mark 5, great passage. Jesus just heals a man from demon possession, and that man just wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go home to your own people, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Do you see how simple it is? He's not saying you have to go convince people. He's saying testify to what God has done in your life. Share that because that's the thing that compels people to him. Finally, the teaching of hell should not drive us to legalistic works-based living where I was when I started and you saw that poster. I was scared to Jesus. 
We shouldn't be living this legalistic life that, that, oh, if we do these works, it'll keep the flames away from our butt. That's not what, that's not what Jesus is saying. We're also not supposed to minimize the teaching of hell or ignore it or rationalize it because it only cheapens God's love. Rather, this teaching has to drive us back to Jesus Christ, who endured unimaginable separation and torture so that we might gain life we did not deserve and saves us from what we fully will become enslaved in sin apart from him. Would you pray with me? Father God, this is a huge topic of eternal weight and eternal implications. God, you know your creation better than anyone as you are the creator, you are the designer. You know what we need and you understand justice far better than our finite minds can know. To mitigate the sin and cancer of the world, you gave your only son. Those that turn to your son receive all the righteousness of Jesus, forgiveness of sin, past, present, future, no condemnation. The hell growing inside of us instead turns to victory and eternal life with you. It's that good and it's that true. That story arc resonates in us because we want justice and we want a savior. Just gonna ask for anyone here that may wanna pray that prayer. Just follow along. Just quietly say this to yourself. Jesus, I recognize I am not in control and I'm tired of trying to be. Take this burden. I turn from my ways and my sin. I want you instead. Take my life and redeem it for you and for your kingdom purposes. For those of us this morning who are following, Jesus, maybe just recommit to this prayer. Lord, renew my burden to share how you have had mercy and grace on me. Let me bear witness to your love and goodness. May people see that and follow you. Let me open my mouth. Lord, we thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word, which speaks eternal truth to our hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen.